It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Wednesday, June 16, 2021, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. Good evening, I'm Kelly Reese. Up ahead, the California Report takes us out to the ballgame with a look inside Dodger Stadium's first full-capacity game since the pandemic began. Next, they travel north to San Francisco, where the city's mayor, London Breed, reflects on the past 15 months of pandemic life, followed by an update on protocols for the recall election. We'll take a brief look at regional headlines and weather before our KVMR Evening News Chamber Report. Then, Felton Pruitt interviews Nevada County Director of Housing and Child Support Services, Mike Dent. We close tonight with a commentary from Holly Grimaldi Flores. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Yesterday here in L.A., Governor Gavin Newsom used the backdrop of Universal Studios Hollywood to usher in the state's reopening. People who are fully vaccinated don't have to wear a mask indoors with a few exceptions, such as public transit, healthcare facilities, and any place that chooses to keep mask requirements. While the governor called it a monumental day for Californians, he also cautioned that the pandemic is far from over. We'll continue to be vigilant, but we want people to be thoughtful. We want people to be kind. Look, today's about hugging again. Today's about reaching out and the serendipity of life, meeting strangers, uh, having the opportunity to experience all the wonders of the world. Newsom says the state will continue to monitor COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations, but there's no official benchmark that would lead health officials to reinstate coronavirus restrictions. At the event, the governor also announced 10 more winners who will each get $1.5 million as part of the state's vaccination incentive prize program. And staying on California's reopening, last night here in Los Angeles, thousands of people celebrated the landmark day by flocking to Dodger Stadium to watch the Dodgers take on the Philadelphia Phillies. Welcome back to Dodger Stadium, everybody. Please make sure to check out our new center field plaza. Welcome back. It was the Dodgers' first full-capacity game since the pandemic began, and fans didn't have to wear a mask or maintain social distancing. The California Report was at the ballpark, and we talked to people about why they wanted to attend this particular game and what they were thinking about as California reopens. I'm a season ticket holder for over 20 years, so I really missed everything last year. And how about this particular game with the reopening of California? Yes, Yes, it's it's great. I mean, it's beautiful. couldn't wait for it, you know, just sitting at home watching games and just waiting for it to open up. And uh, I'm very happy to be here. No other place you'd rather be in California? No, nope, not right now, no. <laughs> I think it's important to be here to come back to what it used to be. And um, just what Dodger Stadium is for us, it's, we need, we need the, the fans. They need us, we need them. And it's exciting just to be back. Is it going to be strange with so many thousands of people I around think here? So. For sure it's going to be... It's going to feel, it's exciting, but it's also scary at the same time. So it's mixed feelings. Definitely mixed feelings. Mixed feelings. Yes. I see you're not wearing a mask. You're comfortable not wearing a mask? For right now. But I'm sure it's in my, it's on my arm. And I'm sure later on I might feel a little, a little too crowded and I might put it on. I think the pandemic changed everyone in some way. I think that moving forward, I think we're going to be a little bit more cautious. I know I'm going to be a little bit more cautious. I think just um, routinely being aware of your surroundings. If I'm in a crowded space, I might, you know, pick up my mask and put it on. 
you know, just to be, re you know, reasonably responsible. So you're not going to let the pandemic run your life anymore, you know, but you're not going to be necessarily do everything the same way you did before. Yeah, a little bit, you know, modifications to, to you know, depending on where I'm at. Boy, it sure feels good to get out. Uh, no doubt about that. And just to be out and about and enjoy the game, be out in the fresh air. See lots of people around See you, lots, of, lots of new faces. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we're human beings. We're, we're meant to, you know, mingle. We're meant to associate. And uh, I look forward to moving forward. And, and many more days like this at the ballpark absolutely. or other places. I got, I got at least five more tickets, five more games I'm coming to. The man is prepared. Right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank Absolutely. you. Go Dodgers. Go Dodgers. Yeah, of course, go Dodgers. <laughs> Apologies to Giants fans. And you just heard from Ignacio Avila, Patty Ibarra, Lina Corvera, and Mike DeCesar, all attending Dodger Stadium's first full-capacity ball game last night. And if you're wondering about the score, the Dodgers defeated the Phillies 5-3. Meanwhile, in the Bay Area, San Francisco Mayor London Breed also expressed optimism when it comes to the pandemic and reopening. Speaking at a news conference yesterday, Mayor Breed reflected on what the last 15 months have been like in San Francisco. None of us could have ever imagined that when we first made the decision to shelter in place in San Francisco, that it would be an entire year and now 15 months of sacrifice. And when you think about what we accomplished, we should be so proud. Mayor Breed also used the occasion to announce that San Francisco's famed cable cars, which have been out of service since the start of the pandemic, will be back up and running in August. And turning to politics, candidates who are hoping to be on the recall ballot to replace Governor Gavin Newsom will have to make their recent tax returns public. KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarati has more. Secretary of State Shirley Weber announced Tuesday that she's keeping in place a low threshold of 65 signatures to get on the recall ballot. In the 2003 recall, that resulted in a field of 135 candidates. This time around, candidates will also have to make five years of tax returns public, the result of a 2019 law. Weber explained her reasoning in an interview with KQED last month. We're going to follow the law to make sure that all of those things are part of it and not just say, well, that, this is a different kind of election, so people can just do anything that they want to do. But the tax return requirement could face a legal challenge because the law only refers to primary elections. For the California Report, I'm Guy Marzarati. And when it comes to a date for the recall election, county election officials in California are urging the lieutenant governor not to schedule it before mid-September. One big reason, if the date is any earlier, they can't guarantee there will be enough paper to print the ballots. Printers that supply the majority of the state's counties with ballots have told local election officials they can't provide materials to hold an election any earlier than September 14th, in large part because they don't know how many candidates will be on the ballot and how much paper they're going to need. Support for the California Report comes from SF MoMA, presenting the exclusive U.S. exhibition of Nam June Peck, a visionary global artist who bridged art, music, performance, and technology. Learn more at sfmoma.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food, on the web at theschmidt.org. And Blue Shield of California, 
rebuilding the future of healthcare with every Californian in mind, from quality and equitable care to not-for-profit values. Learn more at news.blueshieldca.com. And that is the California Report for Wednesday, June 16th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Yesterday, June 15th, the Nevada County Board of Supervisors unanimously adopted the 21-22 county budget. Much focus was placed on reducing the risk of wildfire, a post-pandemic economic recovery strategy, and equitable expansion of broadband access. The board's new budget will also address homelessness, supporting affordable housing, and maintaining the county's fiscal stability and core services. The 21-22 county budget includes $299 million in expenditures, a 12.7% increase from the 2021 county budget. This morning, Nevada City Mayor Aaron Minette and Councilperson Daniela Fernandez attended the addition and raising of the LGBTQ plus Pride Month rainbow flag at City Hall. Earlier this month, Nevada City's City Council unanimously voted to proclaim June as LGBTQ plus Pride Month. The flag, meant to serve as a visible symbol of the council's allyship, will fly from City Hall throughout June. Fire use restrictions will go into effect tomorrow, Thursday, June 17th, at Foothill Recreational Facilities owned and operated by the Nevada Irrigation District to reduce wildfire risk. Due to the drought, hot weather, and dry conditions, campfires will be prohibited in developed campgrounds around Scotts Flat Reservoir and Rollins Reservoir. Following a three-month-long search, the Nevada City Chamber of Commerce announced today the hire of new Executive Director Stuart Baker. The first major projects Baker will focus on include increasing new revenue streams, building a support network to help businesses comply with regulations, and overseeing the production of popular events such as Summer Nights and Victorian Christmas. Yesterday, Governor Gavin Newsom celebrated California's reopening by announcing 10 winners of the 15 million grand prize in the state's vaccine lottery program. Sadly, there are no new millionaires to report in Nevada County. Due to this week's high temperatures, the California Independent System Operator, the agency that manages much of the state's power grid, has asked residents to voluntarily conserve energy as much as possible from 5 to 10 p.m. tomorrow, June 17th, in order to avoid power outages. And now for regional weather. The National Weather Service has issued an excessive heat warning beginning today and lasting through 9 p.m. on Saturday. Widespread triple-digit heat is expected for the lower elevations into the weekend. In Grass Valley in Nevada City, tonight, mostly cloudy with a low around 72. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high near 101. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, partly to mostly cloudy with a low around 44. Tomorrow will be mostly sunny with a high near 92. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, a few clouds with a low around 63. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high near 110. It's time for this week's KVMR Evening News Chamber Report. Listen to what Sierra County has in store for prospective visitors. It's time for the KVMR Evening News Chamber Report. This Chamber Report is from Sierra County. 
who wants you to know that since we've passed June 15th, the grand reopening of California, Sierra County is a great escape. Almost all restaurants and shops are open in Downeyville and Sierra City and the Lakes Basin area, and it's going to be over 100 degrees this weekend, so come on up and cool off. They have many miles of trails with over 30 lakes. The Downeyville Museum will also be open this weekend. Sunday evening, June 20th, there's going to be music in the garden of the Buckhorn Restaurant. Tickets in advance at 530-862-1076. From Sierra County, this has been the KVMR Evening News Chamber Report. On Monday, Felton Pruitt spoke with Mike Dent, the Director of Housing and Child Support Services for Nevada County, about the Odyssey House Renovation Project, transitional housing to help the mentally ill members of our community. We're talking with Mike Dent, the Director of Child Support, Housing, and Community Services for Nevada County. And we're at this very uh, cool unveiling. I guess it's not quite the unveiling, but you were showing people the Odyssey House Renovation Project. Felton, thanks for having me. It is uh, a tour for the Board of Supervisor member District 1, which is Heidi Hall. And we wanted to show her where the construction status was on the project. Um, We began construction in October of this last year. And for your listeners, we're now starting to shell out the building, finish the rough wiring, starting to put up the drywall, and finishing the roof off. So explain to folks just exactly who's going to benefit from this. Sure. This property has been owned by the county for several decades. It was originally a single-family home, and when the county bought it, they converted it into Odyssey House, which is a transitional housing for severely mentally ill. Think of it as a place for somebody to come and get life skills and be comfortable living on their own to hopefully eventually move on into their own house. That's what transitional living means, is it's a place to until you can find a permanent place. And then the added layer to this building is it also gives life skills like cooking, cleaning, interacting with other people. And this was for people that may have fallen through the cracks that other agencies weren't addressing. Yeah, uh, Phoebe Bell would probably be able to answer this clientele source better than I can. But I can tell you from my experiences um, in the county this past 27 years that it is a mixture of sources. Some some folks come from the jail. Some are referred by their case managers or other uh, nonprofit agencies in the county. But these folks, they have to be engaged with behavioral health services and actively trying to better their lives. So people might say, why are we spending so much money on a project like this? But you look at the long-term costs of not spending the money. Address that. Absolutely. I mean, if you're dealing with your own challenges and you have nowhere to go and you're maybe not taking your medications you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to being a victim of assault. You're vulnerable to drugs, alcohol, many, many things. And as a community, we need to do our part to have a place for people who need help. And this is going to be a great place to come. It has been, you know, uh, a great place to date. And now with our expansion and doubling the square footage of this project, we'll be able to help more people. And Felton, this ties into our continuum of care. So someone might come in to the system as a 5150, but they're stabilized. Then they're, then they're brought in to case management and maybe they need a housing assistance. So they may, might end up here if they're gaining skills through our, the commercial kitchen where they can help prepare their own meals and through their therapy and their case management, they might be able to move on to a permanent housing 
uh, unit like over we have in construction over at Brunswick Commons. There's going to be 13 units over there. Think of it as you would graduate and then be in uh, a place to live for the rest of your life, which is sometimes that's what we need to do with our, our, our peers out in there in the community is we need to take care of them. As we stand here today, it looks like the building's about halfway finished. What's the construction finish date? Uh, we're looking at the end of August, beginning of September, to take possession and reopen this as Odyssey House. Well, I just think it shows what Nevada County is all about and that we are actually looking towards the future and planning today for tomorrow and the day after. Absolutely. It's an integrated system of care, whether... You know, we're talking specifically about Odyssey House and, and people with mental health issues. It could be uh, veterans. It could be families. There is a system of care out there that we've established at the county to try to meet people where they are and get them where they need to go. I remember talking with Sheriff Moon about some of the new projects they're bringing her police officers into uh, just because we're learning the new ways through the new world that we live in. Absolutely. Yeah, that, it's all integrated. It's you know, when you call 911, you could get a, a variety of responses. You know, you could get the law enforcement side. You could get a, uh, an outreach worker from Behavioral Health. It's nice to see that our community is addressing the actual true needs that we have. Yes, we all have to do our part. been talking with Mike then. Thank you very much. Thanks. We close tonight with a commentary by Holly Grimaldi Flores. The celebration of Holly's birthday and the recent passing of her father prompts the author to reflect on the evolution of her relationship with her dad. Today is my birthday. It's the 40th anniversary of my official entry into adulthood. 40 years ago today, I attained the right to vote, to get married, and in the great state of New York, take a legal drink. I had been pushing hard for independence for several years and had not looked back until a couple of weeks ago when my brother called to tell me my father died. Suddenly, I found myself flung back into childhood, and I'm having some trouble crawling back out. I'm the baby in the family, the youngest of seven children. The first six children came in a cluster, all born within an eight-year span, and then I came along five years later, stealing my sister's place as princess. Some might guess I was an accident, at the very least a surprise. Some would be correct. As a result of my late arrival, my experience and memories of childhood are a bit different from my older siblings. One of the largest disparities comes with the amount of time they had with our father. I felt cheated. Unlike my siblings, I only have a few clear memories of my dad living at home. My parents had what I understand to be a difficult union. They married young, they had a slew of children, and not very much money. There were issues of fidelity. In my memory, Dad was there on and off, mostly off, and then he was gone for good. When I was eight, my father moved across the country to Arizona, divorcing my mother after 25 years of marriage. In his place came a stepfather and a move to the suburbs, and my almost immediately push toward adulthood. Over the course of the next decade, I saw my dad three times that I can recall, but in my mind, he was everything my stepfather was not. He lived in a great castle and would surely come to rescue me one day. He was part Mr. Cunningham, part Daddy Warbucks. When I graduated from high school, I applied to Arizona State University and went to live with my father and stepmother. We all underestimated what we were getting into. I quickly found out my father was a long way from what I had fantasized he would be. I am not sure he gave what I might be like much thought at all. Our reunion lasted less than a year. 
I dropped out of college and moved back to New York. We did not keep in close contact, but held on to a loose relationship. Time marched on. There were visits, lunches, dinners, family events, and I found I had less and less to say. The pedestal I had put my father on was long gone. His humanity was, in a word, disappointing. We resumed our long-distance relationship, not strangers, but not close. We exchanged Christmas cards and sometimes birthday calls. He would offer unsolicited advice and relay memories, anecdotes, and history that may have included alternative facts. Our last visit was six years ago. We went out to an early dinner. I listened to his version of the past. We took photos, and I said goodbye. No ill will, no animosity, just I love you and goodbye. He left a voicemail on my birthday a couple of years ago telling me he wasn't feeling well, but he wanted to say happy birthday. I do not believe I called him back, but I saved the message. For the last month, I've been hearing a voice in my head telling me to call my dad. I meant to call on Christmas, but I did not. I just didn't know what to say. My walking partner, girlfriend, therapist, suggested I call and just say that. A couple of weeks ago, I finally picked up the phone, but the call did not go through. He died later that evening. I am sad. It's crazy to say, but I have had trouble realizing that even though I knew I did not get the dad I wanted, I finally realized I'm never going to get the dad I wanted. One of my more take-no-prisoners girlfriends offered this advice. Get over it, she said. You are a grown woman. Most people did not get a great dad. Accept it and get on with your life. I spent the last couple of weeks searching my memory of good times with my dad. I remember being small and sitting on the gas tank on a motorcycle he would drive around our property. I remember riding somewhere with him in his red Comet when a truck slammed into the back end of us, throwing me from the back seat to the front. I remember tagging along on the weekends when he worked as an announcer at a local racetrack, crawling onto his lap when he would let me. I remember crawling up next to him one afternoon while he was napping and falling asleep as well. That's the dad I will remember. If I had the chance to say what I wanted to say, it would still come down to this. Hi, Dad. I just called to say I'm thinking about you, and I love you. All of the if-onlys would still sit silently between us, and I would not know what else to say. The views expressed on this show are those of the speakers only and are not necessarily those of KVMR, our board, staff, volunteers, or contributors. Holly Grimaldi Flores writes a column in the Family Focus section of the Union newspaper and produces a podcast called Hollygrams, available on most podcasting platforms. Having raised a blended family of six boys and a girl, now all adults, she lives with her husband of 20 years in Grass Valley. That's our newscast for tonight, Wednesday, June 16th, 2021. We get support from HBE Rentals, Nevada and Placer County's equipment rental and supply yard since 1994. Serving homeowners and businesses with high-reach equipment, including aerial work platforms, scissor and boom lifts, information at gohbe.com. And First U.S. Community Credit Union 
serving the Gold County for over 80 years, providing member owners with loans, savings programs, personal service, and financial solutions for individuals and businesses. In Fowler Center, Grass Valley, firstus.org. Stick around. Coming up next at 6.30 is The Sages Among Us. Then at 7, we have Democracy Now! with host Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off.